Ohio Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Adam Corneth, and he'll be answering your questions on mastering musky on the fly. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Adam a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find out on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you got a moment, do it right now and let other people know about the great shows we have going on here. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Bank doing businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Adam about mastering musky on the fly. Whether you want to catch your first permit blaze, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mint-bright Atlantic salmon in eastern Canada, Gill's Fly Fishing International well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. They only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations, providing the right mix of fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today and start planning your next fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. That's flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Adam, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Adam's section that says register for their free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winner at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a $50 gift certificate courtesy of Muskie Town. And to learn more about what Muskie Town has to offer, go to muskytown.com. Again, that's muskytown.com. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question is going to be about something that Adam and I talk about during the show. And it may be a one, maybe a two-part question. We'll see when it happens. So take good notes, pay attention, and listen closely, type fast, and maybe you'll win that $50 gift certificate from Muskytown. Our guest tonight is Adam Hornet. Adam has been fishing in the Wisconsin Northwoods for nearly 40 years, targeting muskie for most of his life, and now travels with a fly rod as much as family life allows it. As the founder and managing director of Muskytown, he spends most of his time helping others enjoy the pursuit of what used to be known as the fish of 10,000 casts and the full gamut of freshwater, saltwater, and flats predator fly rod species. Flatstown is also expected to launch soon. 
Adam, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks for having me, Roger. Yeah, good to have you. Yeah, you said you just got back from a musky trip, so maybe you can share some of your adventure with us tonight. That'll be fun. Is it kind of the end of musky season? Are you, did you just squeeze in, or how long does the season go? You know, it really depends where you are, but it's uh, it's in full swing pretty much everywhere right now. Oh, okay. Uh, things get better and better until ice up, and uh, winter's been happening a little bit later the last couple of years here, and people are capitalizing and going fishing as much as possible. Just got back from a trip in Wisconsin and Minnesota. I travel quite a bit there. That's where my fishing routes are. We have a place in northern Wisconsin, and uh, try to get back as often as possible to catch up with family and fish. But, yeah, I had a really good trip out there. Accomplished some life goals, caught some big fish. Imagine we'll get into that either on this or after yeah. the show. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Sounds good. How did you first get interested in muskie? My cousin took me. I was a kid, and, I mean, he taught me how to bass fish. A couple of my cousins taught me how to bass fish. And when I was, I want to say, like, 9 or 10, we started talking about me going. But, you know, I wouldn't say I was proficient with a bait caster at that age. And, you know, there were lots of birds' nests and backlashes and things that happen when you take someone who hasn't used a bait caster fishing a lot. Yeah. Took a couple of years until, you know, he felt comfortable with taking me, and I finally earned the ability to go. And I want to say about 12 years old. And we didn't even have an opportunity. It was, like, my first cast with a with a bucktail, like, just, like, you know, pretty basic where you just cast and retrieve. And we didn't even have a chance to talk about figure eighting. And an absolute giant came in so hot. I mean, this fish was eating. And it scared me so bad as a little kid that I, like, ripped the rod out of the water. So, yeah. <laughs> so try not to miss many figure eights these days. I laugh because I think that has something to do with it. But uh, that was really the beginning. I mean, it was kind of one of those jolting experiences, but it was like, oh, this is what we're going to do now. Well, it's funny because my uncle, who was long past, but he used to have a place on uh, up in Lac de Flambeau, I think it is. Um, his place, Northern Wisconsin, his place was right on a lake. And so I took my son up there and, uh, I think he was about, I don't know, I want to say 10 or 11 or something like that. And, um, my uncle's, uh, he was a real character. He was just a crack up and, and you never know when you could believe him, right? Cause he's always kidding you. So we get in the boat, we're going musky fishing. <laughs> and so after getting in the boat, my uncle puts a t-ball bat in the boat. And tells and my son goes, well, what's the t-ball bat for? And and my uncle says, well, these fish are really big. He says, if we get one in the boat, you know, I, I'm going to have to hit him over the head with a t-ball bat. <laughs> so my son's already no, scared. That? No, no. <laughs> and yeah. then we get out there, and we get out there in the boat, and then he tells us about the figure eight. Well, of course we don't believe him because it's my, you know, crazy uncle, right? He says, no, 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 you got to do this figure eight, figure eight, right? And we say, you know, we just wouldn't believe him. And sure enough, just like you described, here comes this monster coming in, and we do this figure eight, and he goes right, you know, under the boat, comes out, crashes it. We missed the fish. I mean, we didn't catch the fish, but then my son's really scared now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, it was a fun story. But And my my uncle just you know, had to be there because he just, you know, he made it all the more 
scary and fun and exciting and just because he's a good storyteller and a crack up. But uh, so I know what you're talking about when you're talking about a figure eight. Not a lot of people do. But maybe we maybe we can talk about that when we talk about retrieves and so forth here later, and you can kind of enlighten people on that. Because that's the real deal, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, yeah, what is your um, – you started out like bait casting, but at some point you started switching over to flies. Did you fly fish for other fish before muskie? Did muskie come later in your journey of fly fishing? It, it did. Uh, very few people jumped straight to it. That, that's a special kind of crazy that I have a ton of respect for some of my yeah. closest friends and fishing buddies are that way but uh no i started i actually got my first fly rod as a kid i, I want to say maybe right around that same time where i was introduced to muskie but it wasn't like a real thing to me yet like i didn't know how to fly cast or double haul it was for panfish and you know trout if you were in the right situation but it wasn't something i would say i was serious about at all and i'd only do a little bit right. in the right situation. Fly fishing was something I got serious about more toward the end of college. And, oh, okay. uh, and it was all smallies all the time. I used to play poker professionally before having a family and after the World Series of Poker and spending, you know, a couple few months out in Vegas, which is a pretty intense place to be for that long. I would unplug and go fishing for six weeks uh, or so each year just to kind of find myself again. And it was one of those situations where we had an incredible smallmouth fishery right up the street from us in Vermont. Mm. And the boat was ready to rock to throw my two bags in and go. And you'd go out all day and you could expect 30 to 50 plus fish pretty regularly. Wow. Yeah, so oh, that's you know, a great way to start. Yeah. Oh, awesome! It was all top water too. I mean, it was like it was yeah. so much. I don't, you know, at that time, I was like, why would you do anything else? But you know, I had that inkling and all that stuff that I'd learned as a kid, and it was only a matter of time until that bug bit hard enough. And when it did, it was like, oh yeah, we're gonna do this forever. It was just instant. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. What is your favorite part about musky on the fly? What was your draw? Adam, you still there? Oh. It is. I'm thinking about the most distinct way to phrase. Uh, oh, okay. I thought I lost you. <laughs> embracing the challenge and the experience and everything that comes with that, enjoying all of the parts of it that aren't necessarily what you would automatically look at and be like, oh, la-di-da, that sounds fun, right? I mean, there's you deal with boat issues we did this year. You deal with gear issues. You do it all the time rods break, lines break, fish come off, like, and you get to a point where picture going from smallies, like playing a video game at one level, you can catch a ton of them if you have your fishery dialed, to all of a sudden your expectations and they become, well, I, I saw a couple fish today, it was a good day, or, you know, oh, that one, that one took a swing and, you know, it was like right as I stripped and it missed and that stuff happens. But like sometimes that's your day and you like call that a win because there was some action and there are times and stretches where it's hard. But when you 
find that enjoyment in all of it and the whole journey and the struggles and the accomplishment and then like sharing that with other like-minded people in the community and you know my family and you know just all of it so I mean it's it's sitting at the vice and tying flies for other people and myself it's getting pictures from them it's telling stories and going on trips and it's every bit of the full experience there's no succinct way to phrase that there you go <laughs> i think we find that in a just all all throughout fly fishing all those parts and pieces i'm just reflecting because my son and i were down in the belize in may and fishing and i just thinking of you know, in the pursuit of the permits out there, it was the, the mm. excitement, the, the adrenaline going, the sweat, the heat. And, you know, I mean, you start thinking about all these things. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I can definitely relate, and I'm sure most people do, especially with big fish and challenging fish <laughs> like you know, like muskie. I mean, it's no no small joke here. <laughs> yeah, big definitely. It's definitely like that. And for some people, it's saltwater species. For some people, it's a native four-inch brookie in an untouched stream in the middle of nowhere. Right. Like, different right. for every person. But I think at the end, you know, whether you've got a buddy who's sitting around the tying table tying a bunch of trout nymphs, oh, I cringed, you can't see me, it's terrible. Or doing something more streamer-oriented, you're sitting there tying muskie flies, like, you kind of can connect at the vice all the way through meeting up and having a beverage and a meal with friends and family. And I mean, we're all really wired the same way. Like we yeah. go fishing, not have to be face to face with work all the time and other yeah. stressful. You know, we do it because it's fun. Experience is, is a big, big thing. So let's talk about the fish itself. Where where in the world do we find muskie? They're not everywhere, right? But what kind of environments do they live in, and where do people go to fish for them? I sure wish they were everywhere. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a lot more places than people realize. I mean, the Midwest has been a place where people focus forever. I grew up in Wisconsin, and as a kid, I would have told you that Wisconsin was the musky center of the universe and for some types of musky fishing it may be and for other types of musky fishing I would say it isn't so I mean it gets to a point where if you're in the Midwest I mean when it's not just Minnesota and Wisconsin the range goes down to Colorado and, and sometimes it's tigers that are stocked but start moving east right. in New England they're Virginia they're pretty much down the coast into North Carolina and Tennessee you can find them everywhere Ohio in Tennessee, both have world-class fisheries the same way as Wisconsin and Minnesota and Virginia I would put on that list too. And again, I just name a couple of states that maybe I have family in and visit or, or but there's, most folks have a muskie fishery within a reasonable driving distance. And if you're not sure where that is, feel free to reach on out and of course happy to point you in the right direction for whether that's resources or basic information connecting you to your local fish and wildlife or DNR. But, yeah, I mean, there's muskies in a ton of places all over North America. Now, how far west would you say they would go? 
Do you find any muskie in Montana, Washington? Utah has some. Let me check the range just because I haven't fished up there, and I know I have team members who have. Give me just a sec. Um, Montana muskie. So, yeah, I mean, they're in Montana. They're in Utah. Okay. Down in Are those more... Uh, are those more tiger musky or? More tiger musky, yeah, and the stocking programs like that, just because of population control and stuff like that. But what are, what is in... I was going to say, what is a, uh, tell us about a tiger musky so we, we know the difference between. Yeah, a tiger and... musky is a, a northern pike muscalunge hybrid. Okay. And they're and they're sterile. So they have to be stocked, yeah. Yeah, so, well, they don't necessarily have to be stocked, but, like, they're not reproducing. And, and when they are, when they get big, like, they kind of turn into unicorns of our state of musky fishing. Like, it's really cool to see a big one. Okay, okay. What do you consider, well, before I ask that, what about Europe, Scandinavia, up in there? I know there's pike fishing over there. Is there any musky over there? No musky there. The uh, okay. there pike genetics are very, very comparable. I mean, they get huge, mm -hmm. similar sizes to muskie in the, the states. And, yeah, it, it's all pike out there. And, again, okay. they, they get enormous. So what, what do you consider the best in the world for muskie fishing? Where would one go? I don't mean That's, specific lake or anything, but, you know, just Yeah, area. yeah, no, I, I wouldn't put it that I wouldn't expect that from you. You're, you're safe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it depends the type of experience a person wants. I don't necessarily want to give a direct location, but I think that if somebody wants, someone's ideal musky trip is catching 30 to 40 inches out of a small stream, you know, maybe some high 20s fish, like small ones. And when they get up, up into, you know, high 30s, they're a lot of fun. That's it. You know, some people would love a trip like that, and you can do that in a ton of places all over the United States into Canada. Okay. It, the same thing if someone's perfect musky trip is open water fishing in giant spaces and finding open water suspended fish structure and fishing that – you know, maybe a Lake St. Clair trip might be someone's style for something like that. Or if they like big river stuff, maybe it would be the Mississippi River in, in some of the northern stretch there. So it really just, mm. there are so many different places that I wouldn't even answer that with a, this is the best one. you got to try them all. Yeah, okay. It, it really yeah. is so, it's every place yeah. has, yeah, I mean, at one level, the fish behave similarly. Sometimes they're more or less pressured. Size averages differ. But at another level, every fishery has character and something different and unique about it. And sometimes oh. that's a specific bite that only works in that fishery. Other times that's, you know, the views around it and the culture and, you know, kind of the, the after meetup scene. It, it really just depends who and where you're fishing, right? Like if you're with your okay. family, it's not going to be the same as meeting up with a bunch of buddies and doing that doing that version of a trip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems to me over the years from when I was a kid, everybody would talk about Wisconsin and Canada for big muskie. 
course, you know, my family was from Chicago, so they all went northern Wisconsin to go fishing. That was the the vacation getaway for everyone. So there was always musky on the tongue when they were t- talking about fishing up there. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Our so, place yeah. is about an hour from where you talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? That's Yeah, that's really close. Yeah, my, my grandfather used to have a place that went down to the Menominee River over on the, the border of Wisconsin and Michigan on the UP. Yeah. Up there. Yeah. So that's where, yeah, I used to go as a kid and fish. Yeah. Well, let's take a, a quick break and we'll come back, talk more about muskie. So uh, give me 30 seconds and I'll be right back. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit Ugly Bug Fly Shop today or at UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, it's UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Adam Corneth about Mastering Muskie on the Fly. If you'd like to ask Adam a question, just go to our homepage and fill out that form and send it in, and we'll see if we can get it answered. Let's see. We do have a couple coming in here. But before I get to these, Adam, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So uh, tell us a bit about what you're up to, especially in the in the muskie world. Yeah. Do you, uh, you think in personal level? You think in business, all of it? Oh, business, yeah. Whatever you're up to. Sure. Tell us about yeah. your business. Yeah, so uh, just finishing some uh, a couple different muskie trips and kind of in the middle of that travel swing right now, which is a blast. So that, that's at a personal level, catching a bunch of fish, hanging with a bunch of people that are fun to hang out with, making new friends. It's been a blast. It always is. But then at the business level, we actually yesterday just launched a new we refer to it as the next evolution in muskie fly design. It's the double back changer. It's a, a muskie fly that just moves incredibly. The the tire, Alex Gray, is the one who came up with the pattern. And the guy has just a ton of attention to detail. The fly is engineered to swim in a way that very few flies do and never really out of the box in a repeatable way. We're really excited about it. Early results have been just out of this world. For example, I had a day when we were first testing the prototype of the fly where we fished all day and we went through the whole box. It's not huge water, but it's got some big fish and there's a bunch of medium and reasonably sized fish too, you know, 30s to 40s and uh, 30s to low 40s. And so we were like, all right, well, let's, let's pull out the new prototype. This is a good spot for it. Like, let's at least get some, you know, swim stuff and feedback and go that route. So we put the fly in and we've been hitting this hole, no joke, for an hour. Like, we anchored up. Had a sandwich, I think, some string cheese. We're in Wisconsin, and get this fly tied on, put a new bike guard on, and throw the thing out there, and go strip, strip, and the thing goes turn, glide, turn, glide, twitch, turn, just fish surges out and smashes it. And I was like turning and laughing and looking, just we were just like kind of blown away just how the thing swam. Like the the eat was just such a huge bonus, and it was definitely my fault. I blew it bad. And uh, we laughed about it afterward. (laughs) 
So, mind you, we're still in the middle of finishing lunch. Like, we're anchored, and this hole has been well-peppered for quite a while. We're, we're not in the middle of any minor or major periods. Weather's not ideal, pretty stable pressure, but, like, not falling pressure like we would prefer. You know, knowing a storm's coming and things are starting to not quite get dicey, but maybe the wind's starting to pick up a little bit, like those fish will get active. But anyways, we're getting ready to, we're like, all right, well, let's get out of here, but we hung out for another five minutes throw back again and that same fish eats again and this time we stick everything feels good a little bit of confusion in the boat fish comes off it happens sometimes you're in a small raft and the the net got tangled up and you know what are you going to do but okay cool really promising like that was in such a short period right like that was in the first five to ten minutes of fishing the thing and all of a sudden we I'm like, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this one on for a little bit. I'm kind of liking it. And uh, we fished for a little bit more, and it was just, it was something about the suspended retrieve and turn. And that was, like, that was a really exciting just kind of first day. Well, that was, like, the first version, and, like, we knew that there were going to be some changes to the pattern. Went back, gave feedback. Alex dialed all that feedback in. We get the, the new prototype versions back, and go back out and it was actually we go back out on the uh my recent my first trip back out to wisconsin and we're in the same hole as has been really good to my cousin and i'm out there fishing with uh with austin corneth of uh, price county adventures and justin hokinson at just a grumpy fisherman one of our lead musky pro staffers with musky town but we're out there fishing and i'm like laughing because i'm like i am i'm gonna throw this thing out there and sure enough we throw it out there and the thing gets eaten right away and we're like all right this is a winner <laughs> like chalk it up yeah um, yeah i guess so it's a little bit tmi but the personal and the business overlap a ton in what i do and what we do and it's one of those things, like, very rarely is there a breakthrough like that, right? Like, Blaine Chocolate's the one who created the Game Changer platform and made right. that massive breakthrough, and we all build on each other. And, you know, Alex took it kind of that next step, and I'm sure someone else will do the next big jump, and we'll all keep building as a community. So Yeah, um, yeah, you'd think, yeah. you know, you'd think by now everything would have been invented and tried, you know, but... It's it never ends. It just never ends. <laughs> Human nature, oh, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, tell people about your business. And is this fly going to be available on on your website? It is. It became available yesterday, and mm. we're starting with a nice starter batch and a, a ton of really cool proven colors. And yeah, it's uh, it's just one of those things that we're excited about. And I will acknowledge it's not one of those things that's for everyone. Like I, there was a, a time in our craft where people were like, "What can I get for a musky fly for ten bucks?" And it's like, "Well, you can get a musky fly, but it's probably not going to be what you want, just because of the time invested." Anyway, you know that there's options for different presentations in different situations, and this is one of those. Are you familiar with kind of the conventional gear side of, like, glide baits and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Some of those custom glide baits go hundreds of dollars. I mean, and people will have, like, I mean, yeah. tens of thousands of dollars. In, or, I mean, I've seen $10,000-plus glider collections not as an uncommon thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah. not my thing, but there really hasn't been that equivalent 
in the fly space in this way. So again, we're really excited about it. I'm sure we'll have a ton so, of uh, pictures coming through from fish from people with it, and we'll roll more stuff mm-hmm. out as we as we're ready. But sorry, what were you gonna say? I've asked. This is going to be the third time I ask you about your business, so <laughs> you're going to lose your opportunity, Adam. What is about 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 MuskyTown.com? Yeah. You can see I'm very silly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've told them all about this great fly, but nobody knows where to get it yet. <laughs> I was counting on you to bring me in. Thank you. Okay, so tell them about your business. Yeah, we'll, we'll get. So, yeah, so anyone who's looking to get into musky on the fly, whether that's tying or fishing, I mean, go to muskytown.com. We've, we've got a resources section that goes through a bunch of, we've got tying with the pros that goes through a bunch of different patterns that a person would want to tie to fill their musky box. We've also got a, a new show called Let's Talk Fly Fishing that we rolled out the first episode of at the end of last season. And we actually, for anyone who's curious about kind of temperatures and kind of what conditions are too hot for musky and that subjective that's kind of a, an ongoing I wouldn't call it a debate but it's an ethics conversation they would definitely want to check that out but yeah we, we have a ton of resources at muskytown.com and and really if you ever don't know where to start there was a time where this was all really overwhelming just because of the pure volume of terminal tackle details and flies and all the different situations um, don't be afraid to reach out and ask questions. We all started there, and it's the only way in, and it's not a thing that people need to be afraid of anymore. We have a ton of information to try to be inclusive and build the community the right way. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, muskytown.com, and you're selling not only flies, but gear, rods, reels, lines, everything that goes along with musky fishing, right? Exactly. Yeah, we're home for quality musky flies and select fly gear. Yeah, good, good. Well, good. So check it out, folks, muskytown.com. And like Adam said, you know, he's more than willing to answer questions. If you're new to the, the muskies, that's the place to go. Well, good. Let's jump in. we got a lot of questions to cover here. Musky Greg Nichols wrote in from Alabama. And he says, what part of the year is a good time to target muskies? You can fish for them all year long. It just depends where you are. Typically, the commonly accepted line is, 80-degree water temps, as you hear people say, do not go fishing for muskie. Uh, I'm of the opinion they won't, so I just won't. When it gets so hot, it's uncomfortable for them. I mean, we use the analogy in one of the episodes I was, I was talking with Jordan Weeks, who's a wildlife biologist at the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and he specializes in, in muskie behavior and biology. And we joked about, you know, when was the last time you were in the middle of vigorous physical activity and then you're like, you know what I want to do? I want to eat a sandwich. Like when the water gets a certain temperature, like they just don't want to eat. Right. For me, right. I'll start to lay off them at the upper ranges. Like I actually won't necessarily always fish for them when the water is 75 plus, just depending on the fishery. And that's a personal decision. And I know I'm missing out on fish, but sometimes it's really good smallie fishing then too. So I'm not too upset about it. But okay. fall is prime time. So Best time of year is going to be fall. Like the, the time where temperatures shift from summer to fall until ice up, things get better and better because fish know that forage is going to start to become limited. So they try to put on as much weight as they can before the winter. And when is their spawn period? Is it in the fall or spring? It's in the spring. It's in the spring. Oh, in the spring. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Ian Burns in... 
Maine wrote in and asked, can you talk about what your ideal weather conditions, especially barometric pressure and how it changes, how the changes affect the fish? Yeah, um, ideal is, uh, yes, let's give you ideal, but I want to give a little more than that too. I like fishing in stable barometric conditions, but I wouldn't necessarily say the fishing is best when pressure is stable. The fishing is best as pressure is falling. Like if you know it's going to rain tomorrow, or even if it's going to like, say you have afternoon thunderstorms coming or afternoon rain showers or things are starting to stir up, when it's too clear and barometric pressure is too stable, sometimes the fishing gets challenging, right? Like if they can see, if the fish can see really, really well, like it really does, it increases the difficulty level. Usually a little bit of chop on the water is nice. It keeps the fish from spotting the boat as easily if they're following and coming in, following barometric pressure. The fish can feel that. Like they know a storm is coming. So they're, in my opinion, and, and I think more than that, more likely to eat in those conditions when a storm is about to come and things are, it's not just glassy out there. I mean, there, there's times where it is and it's really, really good, but definitely not the rule. Okay, okay. And there are, and um, frankly, there are no rules in any of this. For every generalization that we make, like there's some things that are preferences. Somebody can point to a fish that somebody caught doing something else. So this really is just sharing experiences and evidence from time on the water. So yeah, please yeah, keep pretty yeah. going. I just I want to be realistic with you know everyone's got their opinions and it's the details that really drive what is objectively best for a given yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are musky are musky territorial? What's their behavior like? They are territorial. They'll usually have a home range. And sometimes they'll cover a lot of water and migrate long distances too, which is interesting. But there are often times, especially in smaller rivers and smaller stillwater, where certain spots are more likely to hold fish. So I would say, yeah, they're definitely territorial. And Seasonally, there's times where they'll stack up, especially in the fall, say, like, things are getting really cold and, you know, there's a deep hole in a river where there's slower current. Like, there's definitely times of year where muskies will stack up. But there's other times of the year where the same fish will be found in the same home range. Maybe it likes certain traits of a given stretch of river or structure or something like that. But, mm -hmm. yeah, they're, they're territorial. Outside of Does the stack-up behaviors. Yeah. Do the northern pike and muskie cross over? In other words, are you going to find them in the same areas on a river or a lake? Often, and muskie love eating pike. They love eating pike, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Pretty... small pike. Yeah, yeah. How do you, you know, if you get a big uh, pike, how do you know the difference between a muskie and a pike? When you see it, the markings. They are similar. I mean, what what's... Shapes are very similar. Usually it's the markings. I mean, the coloring's different. They don't look the same. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, again, what... like, if you looked at a silhouette, they would, but the coloring, is, it's typically much more of, like, kind of an olive speckling with their markings and kind of more toward a... Deeper, yeah, yeah, deeper yeah. olive. What about size? What's, um, it seems like there's always pictures of, large muskies, but never pictures of small muskies. Uh, 
where are the small ones? <laughs> oh, there, there's pictures of small muskies. We just we don't always share those as much, and not necessarily because <laughs> small muskies definitely deserve love. Like they definitely deserve love too. But I think that life happens, and someone will end up catching a bigger fish afterward. And maybe not every small one gets shared. But I mean, every muskie yeah. is special. But you, question, do, you yeah. do catch them, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, you, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, you asked about average size. Yeah. There's, so average size depends on the, the waterway or on the fishery, but 30 to 40 inches or so, 10 to 20 pounds, and then skew that how you want. Mm-hmm. Smaller piece of water, it might be high 20s to high 30s or low 40s, and a bigger piece of water, yeah. it may be mid 40s to even mid 50s or, or you know i mean there's some giants out there depending on the fishery yeah yeah i got a question from uh, phil mccartney and he's a longtime listener of our show in kentucky he's asking me uh please tell us the story of how you caught the muskie in the photo pictured on for the show the one you gave us to put on the website oh you, you're gonna put me on the spot like that i mean my goodness we were going to share it and tell the story and everything but we could probably do that. Well, I, you know, you just tell general stuff. That's, that's, uh... No, no, I'm, I'm happy to give it up. Um, we actually, uh, one, of the, one of the friends who really helped shorten the learning curve, his name's John Cooper in Muskie Fly Fishing. We've been going out fishing with Luke Swanson and living the dream. And he actually, with Luke, caught like a 53-and-a-half-inch river giant um, a few years ago. But um, we went out there with Luke again, and we were fishing in northern Minnesota, and we're throwing, <laughs> we're throwing giant 18-inch specialized musky flies. And the... I don't want to get too far into the technique, but it's a fishery-specific, really cool way to fly fish. I mean, it's these flies are so big. I don't know if you've ever tried to carry a heavily weighted 18-inch fly, but it's not the easiest thing. So we're using, you know, 14 to 16-plus weight specialized two-handed fly rods, and we're waterloading wow. our fly rods, yeah, and we're we're holding, you know, and it is absolutely fly fishing. I mean, you're, you're throwing your loop the same as you would if you were carrying your line. But, I mean, I'll say I, a few years, a couple years ago, tore my rotator cuff. And the only yeah. way that I could possibly continue to fly fish with my shoulder dangling in the socket was to two-hand load a rod, right? And there's a train of thought, I think, that, you know, oh, you got to be, double hauling and, and one hand rod and or it's not fly fishing. I've heard that from a couple people. It only takes being hurt once like, to reprogram that. I was like, all right, yeah, no, this is definitely, this is the version I'm going to do. And now that the stigma there is, is no longer there and I've accepted that it's just a specialized technique for a situation that really, I mean, if you find someone that can carry these flies comfortably for a full day of fishing and, and not be so fatigued that their focus hurts, I would be happy to have a conversation and, Love to yeah. learn the learn the way of the warrior from someone so much more well versed than the rest of humanity. Yeah, it sounds like spay fishing for musky is what it sounds it, like. You know, realistically, there's an element of that, and you know, it, two-handed it's, rod. It's, yeah, it's not yeah. what I'd want to do in a, a small stream by any means, right? Like if I knew that we were going to be throwing it 
30 to 40 inch fish all day, like give me the old trusty 10 weight and we're going to have a blast. But you're throwing at fish in the, the world-class category. I mean, like 53 and a half inches and 50 inch plus class fish, like they're not common things. So yeah, if someone has figured out and Luke with Living the Dream in Minnesota has how to make that type of fishing more accessible and to do so in a way that fly anglers who would otherwise be unable to participate can do. I mean, I think it's an incredible thing for the craft, really. Mm-hmm. So any, anything special about catching that fish? Was, I mean, I yeah. think we're using a particular technique, but... Yeah, always. I mean, I, I won't get into the, the strip-level tactics, but, you know, I, we have a four-month-old daughter at home, um, I have an eight-year-old daughter, my wife, to go on a fishing trip, even though it's my job. And I don't want to give the wrong idea going on a fishing trip, right? You're, you're capturing footage and you're working. And, like, I mean, I'm actually, like, fielding emails and stuff. But to go on a trip like that, especially to spend a, a week or two away from our daughters and, and our family and then to have it be worth it, like, yeah, I'd say that's pretty special for sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Phil, you'll have to you'll have to wonder about how he caught that fish and where he got it. So we'll leave it at that. Phil, um, feel free to give us a shout. We, we can we can chat. That's maybe Adam. Have you considered politics? <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Just yeah. Getting the non-answer is what I'm. Uh, you're good. Uh, Phil also threw in another question here on the internet. This is maybe a little I can give Phil a little fish. more intel too. We're throwing giant <laughs> jig flies and we're fishing them erratically. Okay, okay. There you go. Uh, he says I grew up in uh, Minnesota, caught lots of northern pike, but muskies seem to behave differently. How would you characterize the difference between northern pike and muskie? Yeah, that's definitely an accurate assessment. Pike like to eat. <laughs> no. Oh. Um, no, pike are less particular about what they eat. And it's it's not like they're sitting there going, oh, I don't know about that. A muskie's not doing that. It's wired into how they eat. I'll never forget. One of the first videos I saw that I felt like really, really captured it, Blaine Chocolate did it. It was one of his, he was tying a pink and chartreuse T-bone it's a pattern we use and uh it's he talks about how if you've ever seen a cheetah or lion chasing a gazelle was the example but on the serengeti how they don't they're not running in a straight line and the predator species doesn't run and jump on their back if you ever watch they run and they're waiting till that gazelle or zebra is darting and turning and they're waiting for that turn so when that profile presents itself and they lunge and they use all that energy to surge and eat they don't want it to be wasted so a pike will like they'll chase some stuff and they'll go after it and like they really are pretty active like they're voracious so they, they eat a ton and they're a blast I mean the European pike if someone has an opportunity to do that from here in the states go do it because it's I've talked with a couple friends who have and they're like you have to go get on this and those plans are already in the works but to muskies, the fly behavior that you're using is so very important. The Because a muskie is usually following, and we talk about this in, 
and I'm not intending the plug, I think there's just more valuable context here that people benefit from. Um, episode 10 of our Tying with the Pros series, we talk about musky fly theory with Joe Goodspeed. And we talk about how a muskie will typically follow a fly or a bait fish from down and beneath it, waiting for their moment. And usually that fish wouldn't know that they're there. But they'll wait underneath them, and they're waiting for that turn, that, that little bit of extra profile to trigger. When we're tying flies for muskie versus when we're tying flies for pike, and sometimes there's definitely some crossover, like especially some of the jig flies that I like to fish. When I'm tying, let's just name a couple of basics, like a, a Buford or a turn fly, even my jig flies, We'll tie them very sparse in the tail and then denser toward the head. And I really like even my jig flies to turn on the strip. And depending on the pattern, if that's a glide fly or a turn fly, and the difference between them would be like a Buford, I really like to fish in current, even if it's just a little bit of current. Because when it's a turn fly, when you strip it, and it stops and turns. In current, that looks pretty natural. That's like a bait fish that stops and just started coasting. But when you're in a still water situation, to me it's much more unnatural for a fly to just, you know, you don't watch a bait fish just like hit the brakes after it gassed it, right? Like there's usually a glide afterward. Get me back on track. You know I've been up since 3 a.m. Where were we going? <laughs> so, uh, okay, well, we were talking about the difference between muskie and, and mm -hmm. pike. So basically say what I got, you know, the, the takeaway is, Pike just feed a lot more aggressively and more actively, it sounds like, than muskie. Yeah, they do. I was just wrapping up. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I was just uh, finishing up, and it's a little bit of a segue into flies, but we're really designing yeah. flies that trigger and eat when we're tying for muskie, um, more so than for pike because of how much more selective they are. Yeah. 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 That, that's yeah. Question about that. You say, hey, the, the fly turns and they're more broadside, and you think, I got the indication that that may be the time that they make the take. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so it's going to depend seasonally. The eat during the summer in still water, for instance, won't necessarily be the same eat in the fall as things get cold. You know, like if I was fishing a lake in the summer, I might want something that had some extra action and glide to it, right? Like when I finish stripping and I want to turn and then I want it to go a little bit extra. Whereas if I'm fishing in a river, the fly and, and the, the fall, like great example, you know, we were talking about that double back changer. When you switch to a more of a suspended eat, when the water gets cold, the fish start to get, Maybe they're eating more, but maybe they're a little more lethargic and not as readily surging to eat. Sometimes they'll be keyed in on a jig presentation, but sometimes they'll be keyed in, as in this case, on a suspended turned presentation. So, I guess what that, I was getting at, what, what yeah. I was trying to get at is, do the muskie hit and stun and then eat, or do they go for, for the eat? No, right no. They, no, they want to eat. So like we talked about, and I think this is a great spot to kind of get into the figure eight a little bit more. When fish are eating that suspended eat, 
they are really when you know picture that fish following underneath the fly, waiting for that fly to kind of slow down a little bit and turn and present just a little bit bigger a target. Sorry, that's the direct question again. I'm uh, I just got distracted by something over here. Oh, it was about whether the they're stunning them and then eating them, or whether they're directly eating them. Just one yeah, thank percent. you for getting me back on Accident. track. Yeah, they're eating they're eating hard. So what I was finishing with there is so say that like. Say that suspended eat, maybe they're interested. Sometimes, you know, you hear a lot of times about a muskie following as opposed to eating. Right. Well, the figure eight is where we talk about presenting that turned profile. So picture a fish coming in at you and you're stripping in and the rot, you know, you strip the fly to about 12, 18 inches from the tip of your rod and you come down and deep and you see that fish behind you and you kind of accelerate down and you get deeper so the fish is like, eye to eye with the boat because they'll spook off if they see the boat sometimes. Sometimes they won't care. Sometimes they'll hit the trolling motor. But <laughs> you uh, you come fast down and deep and as you turn out into the corners, you come up a little shallower and then you kind of hang and you kind of really present that attack angle for a muskie and you can trigger and eat often in the eight. And, it, and it's a skill that the longer that you're into muskie fishing and muskie fly fishing, the more you can refine and I, I say it that way, like, all I do is use a fly rod. But a lot of people will use a gear rod in some situations, and they'll use a fly rod as a tool in others, and they'll go back and forth. And I don't mm -hmm. ever judge somebody who does that. But I use the example of if you ever watch a gear angler figure eight, they do it much faster than we do because of the lures that they're using. Right. Anyway, all and of the this will stiffness go. of the rod, too, I would expect. Big time. Yeah, we Jordan have to talk about that yeah. with Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so why don't you just, since you brought it up, why don't you describe what the figure eight is for people that are... Yeah, I so, I mean, it, it's what it sounds like, in essence. So picture if you were, your perspective watching the boat and someone retrieving was directly above them. In essence, they're making a figure eight in the water with their rod. Um, the nuance comes in the actual technique when you, when you know, picture you've got... 12 to 18 inches of bite guard out the end of your fly rod and you come down in the center well when you don't have any more room to strip and that's why a lot of specialized musky fly rods and, and dedicated rods will have that rear extended buck grip you'll actually reach down and deep and then you'll pick a side um, usually away from the trolling motor if you're in the front but you'll pick a side and you'll you'll go to the side and you'll come up and you'll actually make that big wide figure eight. And the bigger the fish, the bigger the figure eight you have to make. But you accelerate down and kind of down and under the boat even though you're not going under. Um, and then you come up and you slow down. And there's some different dynamic things you can do in the figure eight. And I would definitely encourage people to Google. There's a ton of great resources around. Or if they have specific questions to call in and talk through. I mean, this is, I, I do sure. a lot of this every day. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of have to get out there on the water and and uh, get a, a little lesson. It sounds like. Yeah, um, <laughs> it sounds like we might have to. Yeah, yeah. Let me take a quick break here, Adam, and we'll come right back and we'll we'll talk about some gear here and plot a little bit more on flies. So uh, hang tight. We'll be back in about thirty seconds here. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with the restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County. 
New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats, like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind uh, experiences. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. So uh, check them out, and uh, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Adam Forneth about mastering musky on the fly. If you'd like to ask Adam a question, go to our homepage, fill out that form, and we'll try to get that question answered tonight on the show. Adam, we did have a couple, uh, maybe these can be, see, uh, Aaron in Longmont, Colorado, I believe. He says, are tiger musky easier to catch? Nope. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. So they're I just ap- I apologize okay. for that not being the desired response. Okay. I, I wouldn't Good say enough. they're more difficult. I wouldn't say they're more difficult necessarily, like all being equal. The challenge in my experience and from some folks I, I've had quite a few conversations with who, who target them, a lot of the tigers, you know, they're they're not common in a lot of regular fisheries, right? So if you're if you have right pure strain muskies, depending on the strain, whatever. But if you have them there, it's not going to be as common for there to be hybrids there, just right, by the right. nature of the beast. If you go out in one of these stocked fisheries in Colorado, like the example you talked about, a lot of times you're talking about crystal clear reservoirs with different mm-hmm. structure makeups, and usually they're pretty highly pressured. So they do become challenging to catch in those situations, but it just – it's more of a different equation than I would almost yeah, equate it to like fishing for early yeah. season fish. Yeah, like you're not necessarily throwing. And again, I'm speaking in generalities. I don't want to pin myself to someone say, "Oh, you said that." Like, no, you're not necessarily going to throw an average nine-inch fly, depending on the fishery or the fish or what they're used to seeing. I mean, one of our customers and someone we've had a few conversations with, and then a couple other. Um, gentlemen who spend more time fishing for tigers than I do, we talk about it, and they usually say, like, downsides a lot more than you would expect, and they're very, very picky. Like, you're not going to – if you – and this is for all musky fishing, but I think that everything's magnified any time you're after a lower-frequency target. You need to have perfect confidence in your fly. And, and that isn't going to be the case with every fly you tie on. Like, it's usually going to be pretty quick. Like, I like to waterlog a fly and then get a good sense for its action. And if that thing's not turning or I'm not able to impart as erratic an action in it because it's not behaving predictably, like, there's every once in a while it just happens, that fly might not get fished. Let me rephrase that fly will not get fished. It will get taken off. And a lot of times I'll you know, I'll give a fly to a friend or a family member and they'll go catch fish with it and that's great. But it, it isn't about whether or not the, the fly will catch fish, it's about the confidence of focus. Because the second that you're not yeah. the second you're second guessing, the second maybe you have like line management issues and you're already second guessing, maybe that was a little irritating and you broke focus and right in that moment a giant came up and you just didn't have your stuff together to make it happen. It really like I think that for tigers just getting back on track and being direct, 
I might lean towards stuff in that six to seven inch range. And I have questions about specific structure and the fishery. If, if it's a fishery that you're comfortable sharing in a private conversation, sometimes we'll have customers that are in the area that are willing to connect with people. Anyway, it, it's a pretty small community, yeah. and, and we all appreciate the challenging nature of somebody who doesn't know the ins and outs of musky on the fly. It can be daunting. Yeah. But yeah. But there are people that want to help you because we've all been there. Yeah. Well, let's move on and talk about equipment. You've kind of been giving us some bits and pieces, but say somebody's thinking about going out and going after musky, what would you recommend for, for the type of rod? Yeah, what weight? usually there's, so there's like the default basic, and I'll, I'll give a little bit more than that, of course. As a basic, I feel like every everyone who wants to target musky needs a 10 weight. And if not a 10, an 11, what will often happen and what, what I see too often is someone will go and buy a 12 weight when they really needed a 10 weight and didn't necessarily know it. It's just fishery dependent. Maybe they thought they needed the 12 weight to cast a certain class flies that they found out a 10 would be good for. But usually a 10 weight rod, and I like there's so many good musky specific options these days. The BC Big Fly from TFO, I, I don't necessarily intend the, the plug, but the rods really impressed me. I used to fish the old Esox, and again, with a family, I'm not a person that will typically go out and buy, you know, the Ferrari of fly rod. Like, that's just not who I am. I've casted them. I've fished most of them, and I like them. I just, as a person with a family, can't justify that jump. What's the difference between, for instance, the 11 weight that I go after tarpon with, and is that a rod I could use for muskie? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't, and, and I definitely am on the right track here. So where I was going with those rods is I was just going to mention, you know, I mentioned TFO and everyone knows them, but let's also, like, mention some smaller rod shop, like Wolf Rod Co. They're based out of Kentucky. They, he makes uh, the River Wolf. It's an 11 weight a solid musky fly rod for someone getting into it and not trying to get in there and spend crazy money. To your tarping question for a... Can What's the difference in the rods? I mean, is, is it action? Yeah. Fitness, what, you know, I mean, if well, I wanted, you know, if, if you said, hey, Roger, let's go musky fishing, can I just grab my 11 weight and come and join you? You know, I would tell you, it, I would, yeah, I would tell you it depends which 11 weight. I've been in the boat with, Friends who pull out their Axiom 2X, it doesn't have an extended fighting butt on it, but it casts well in their setup they have, and they don't want to buy another rod. Yeah, that works. There are other fly rods, and I actually, um, I won't name a particular manufacturer, and, and not because we, there's no business implications here or anything. I just, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. I had spent my first like ultra premium fly rod a number of years ago and the purpose of the rod my goal was to occasionally use it for tarpon and go for musky and it was more of a tarpon rod and not good for musky because it was a little bit softer tip it didn't quite have certain casting traits that i really really liked and bottom line is everyone's casting stroke is so subjective it really just depends the rod Mm -hmm. Some people can use what they have. 
Um, I typically like to, rec like, I really like the extended fighting, but I mean, if someone's going to get serious about it, it is the type of thing where picture for a 10 plus hour day, every time you get a figure eight, you're like cupping the very end of your full wells, but versus, you know, having a nice full hand to like reach down. I mean, it's something you appreciably notice over the course of a day. Yeah, yeah. What about, We've got Alan in New Jersey is asking about the, the type of line and leader setup that you use. That's an awesome question, and it's one that um, we talk about a lot. Oh, man, it's so dynamic. I'm just trying to figure out the best level for our purposes here. So depending on the depth of the lake, if it's a huge lake, a lot of these fish fish will often be in you know deeper water suspended. You'll need faster sinking lines. If we're talking about like you know a smaller, I'm just trying to think like you know maybe a 20 acre lake or something small or smaller, and those fish are relating to maybe like shore structure. Like it just depends what the fishery is. Your line leader setup is going to change. So like let's start at the fly. So bite guard. Very, very rarely am I one to condone the use of fluorocarbon as a bite guard. There are very, very rare situations where, like, I know of a couple fisheries where the fish aren't very big, and for me, I know the tensile strength of the weight of a fish on the end of my fluoro, and if there was a different class fish in the fishery, and I didn't know the fishery so well, I would never use fluoro. It would be unethical. And when I say I would hardly ever condone it, like there's like one or two fisheries that I know of well enough in the world that I would feel comfortable with that. Now, why? Why? Because I know those fisheries intimately and have for a number of decades, and I know the largest fish in there is a size that if it caught the biggest current in that water, wouldn't be able to put enough weight on the flora, on 80-pound fluoro to break it. And because I don't want to leave a fly and a muskie just as an ethical decision. So 99.99% oh, okay. of the time, and again, I very rarely even talk about using fluoro as a bite guard because it is ethically something that I'm not, it's not something I recommend okay. to others. So what do you use? Yeah, so what do you use? Nautable wire and, you know, either 26-pound or 40-pound. And if I'm using... 26 pound it's usually because we're in moving current and I'm with someone who doesn't want a back row or we you know the trolling motors got limited battery or something like that and I'd rather just bust off the fly than maybe risk a fly line or make someone go row back up river you know if you hooked on the bottom or something so yeah but if I'm not worried about that I'll usually use a 40 pound bike guard and even with some fly lines that have 30 pound cores if anything breaks on a snag it's usually at the knot in the leader I've broken a couple of fly lines, but not very many. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That, so, that's a frequency so you, I accept. Okay. So, um, and then what do you use for leader then? Yeah. So for leader, and I didn't get into length, so knottable wire, usually, you know, I, I used to say like anywhere from like 12 to 18 inches was plenty. Especially with bigger fish, all air on 18 plus inches. Sometimes the big ones really do take it deep, and you're just kind of insulating yourself. And so if you don't know, it's okay to err on the longer side. It might be a little harder for your loops, especially if you're maybe not the most experienced caster with larger flies. But 
you're going to get better action out of your flies while they're in the water, and you don't necessarily have to cast that far. So in terms of leader, as a starting point, I usually tell people about three feet of 40-pound mono or fluoro, and that's just a budget decision. Like, I, you know, I've used mono. I don't, I don't believe it hurts, you know, your eat frequencies or anything over fluoro. It's just a personal preference thing and, and what you have access to. Okay. But three feet's a starter point. If you're fishing very deep on a fast-sinking line, I mean, a case can be made for a two-foot leader with your bite guard, and that'd probably be enough. On the other end of the spectrum, with a fly that is very active and a glider that's just, you know, got awesome action, you know, there's times where you would want to consider using, uh, and we talk about this at Joke at Speed in that, uh, that episode, Ten of Time with the Pros, there's times where you might want to use a leader as long as 10 plus feet because you have a very specific purpose, whether that's a, a quick drop-off that you're looking for a vertical presentation for or you have a fly that really swings hard left and right and you want to give it some extra with your leader, you can do that beyond just, you know, finishing your strip and giving the rod tip and a little bit of line back. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, right. um, yeah. I, I think the only that. thing on yeah. yeah, I think the only thing on fly line we haven't touched on is sink rates of fly lines. Are you always I using make, sinking or sinking tip? Or are you using floating? Um, there's a case for floating sometimes. Usually, I use intermediate in those applications. But before we get into those pieces, I would just say that a lot of times I'll hear folks will talk about fly lines, and there's a bit of a Sometimes a disconnect in talking about grain weights and sink rates. Mm -hmm. Making sure that the grain weight of a fly line pairs well with a given rod to load it is, I think, one of the most important parts of fly fishing. You can fight your combo all day if it's not set up right. Um, so beyond making sure that that grain weight is paired, let's distinguish to sink rate. So even for most musky topwater presentations, I will usually use an intermediate line, usually because I'm not going to have a ton of really long pauses. And if I was, I could see there being a case for a floating line there. And there's some awesome floating lines that have big heads that turn over flies. Like, I'm not, I don't have anything against them. Like, if somebody wants to get a bunch of different lines, like, you can make a case for a floater and intermediate all day. For me, I'm fishing... The vast majority, I, I very rarely fish topwater. Almost always subsurface. So intermediate is kind of the starting point, and depending on the fly that I'm running, from one to five feet, I can make a case for. But there's a time, you know, there's times in that same depth range where I can make a case for a type three sinking line, just depending on the fly presentation that we're after. Right? If you have something that suspends and hangs on a sinking line that's not going to get down the same as a jig fly on an intermediate or as a jig fly on a sinking line. So that's one of the challenges with, I think, fly fishing and one of the barriers to entry in the past is people, aside from all the technical kind of knowledge and experience stuff, that it's like, well, I wouldn't know that. And there really wasn't anyone you could talk to about it. Mm -hmm. Now these specialized lines exist. Like manufacturers most of the manufacturers are making excellent lines these days. 
specifically to turn over big flies. And whether you're in 10 feet, I am, again, I'm generalizing because this is a longer conversation, but whether you're in 10 feet of water and you want to throw a sink five line just kind of as a do-all and you have one line, like that's going to be a different recommendation than if you're like, well, I want to use a intermediate and a type three to cover the top two feet of the water column. And then I want to use a type five down the next seven feet. And it's like, well, I have this one piece of structure that's a drop off and this other one that's a blowdown. Like it gets really, really nuanced in a hurry. The cool part is because we understand our our target so well, because we understand our flies so well and how they move, when you connect all the dots this way, if you're figuring it out like from like bar none, you are every bit of ten thousand casts in. Like make no mistake. <laughs> But if you're, I'm if getting you're tired having, just listening. <laughs> man, are, that, I, are you holding up the speed em up sign? Is that what that was? <laughs> yeah, that, it was. Well, when we were in Belize, we were fishing a channel for tarpon and 350 grain, you know, sinking line, and not big flies. I mean, maybe four inch flies or something we're throwing. But, but that's a lot of work to keep casting, and that was blind casting. So. Absolutely. So, you know, we've we've got all these sinking lines and these heavy rods and these heavy flies. Are you sight fishing or are you blind casting most of the time for these fish? Most of the time it's blind casting. Generalities, again, I think my favorite line all around the fish is a type 3. An intermediate's good and shallow stuff, but I'm usually trying to get down, and I like to move it pretty quickly. A type 3 or faster usually covers most depths, I want to say. Type 3 will cover from about 3 feet, and that's on the shallow end, to 6 to 10 feet, depending how long you feel like letting your fly hang or get down. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, if you're someone who wants to throw a Type 10 and rip it with a buoyant fly, like, you might only be getting down 2 feet, so... Let's... uh, I'm going to have to roll quick here, Adam. Um, Mm -hmm through uh, some of the rest of these questions, but I want to try to get some of these answered for folks. Yeah, do you want me to be ready uh, to rapid fire? I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah, 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 do that. Tammy Goodwater in Omaha, Nebraska says, what's your, your favorite fly tying material to use when tying up musky flies? Bucktail and schloppen. The only thing I'll say about bucktail is that it is a natural resource and there are limitations with it. So synthetics, you know, we're, we're just scratching the surface of what synthetics can do in our craft. And the more I dive down that rabbit hole, I really like synthetic materials as well as natural. Okay. Okay. Steve Bush in Moscow, Idaho asked, do you have any materials you use when tying pipe flies, well, or musky flies that don't hold water and cause the fly to become heavy? Any particular color preferences you use? Yeah. Um, ton of different synthetic options. I mean, off the top of my head, um, Flash and Slinky, Ferrar Blend. We've got Strong Fuzzy Fiber. There's Super Hair. Like, there's a ton of different synthetics. Um, and, and then color, that's going to depend on the stain in your water. And it really is going to be dependent. Like, don't be afraid to talk to a gear angler. They're usually pretty happy to share once they see that we have a fly rod. They're like, oh, this guy needs all the help he can get. 
Uh, <laughs> 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 but it's actually really cool because like they're they're it's made a bunch of really good friends that fish with gear and then we always share fishing reports and it works great for everyone. But in terms of color, I think that black is one that always works in dark conditions and white and shad stuff and don't be afraid to play with browns and suckery stuff and, and match your local bait fish forage as much as you can. I mean, if you have perch, throw some orange pops in there and some yellow. And, you know, uh, if you've got bluegills, maybe some blue. If you've got gizzard shad, like, you know, tie up something white, play with some yellow and silvers, maybe, like, some little hits of pink, and it, again, it's just going to depend on the stain in your water and your fishery. Yeah, yeah. Matt in Colorado was asking about color and or style or streamer for use in the fall. So color is more to do with the stain of the water. You just said. Yeah. Is, is, is there any style change ups you do seasonally? Not necessarily. I might be. I might use something that's more likely to suspend as the water gets colder. In terms of color, um, the one thing we didn't touch on in this, and this is just like a fly selection thing, action, size, and then color as a, a distant third consideration. Colors don't show in the water okay. column the same as we're used to seeing them. Black is visible longest, deepest, but like, you know, if you take something red, you only, it doesn't take moving down that far in the water column for that to just appear like a dark blob, and then eventually like nothing. Focusing on action and then being in the wheelhouse of forage size, those two things are much more important than color, and then color is kind of like the cherry on top. Once you know that you have a good idea of what the average size is and, you know, if your fishery, if they like jig flies or if you have the current to like turn flies or if they like gliding stuff or, you know, you're going to know those details as you go. Color is going to be the thing you figure out or care the least about after that, and, you know, don't be afraid to go simple until you want to play. Like, if you want to throw a white fly or a black fly, like, you can do a white fly in bright conditions and black and dark. I can't imagine that would be a bad place to start. I think it's an oversimplification, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hard. A lot of factors in play. Sure. Yeah, and color is, um, like, you know, a lot of this is for us, too. Like, I, I like my flies to look pretty. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Um, what would you, you know, with all this, this heavy line and gear and stuff, what would you say that average length of the casts you make are? Uh, the necessary casting length and the average are different. I like to cast a little further, so I don't mind, especially the light, easy casting fly, taking an extra false cast. If I'm deep in the grind, like that two-hand method we talked about, part of what's so effective about it is when you finish your figure eight, you literally shoot your fly back out with 15 feet of line and you finish your cast out there. I mean, you're fishing twice as often, just not carrying all the extra false casts. So, mm -hmm. right. You know, I, where was I going with that? Pardon me. Well, just I was wondering about the length. You know, when you fish oh, in the fall. Yeah. So, yeah. forty to sixty foot range is probably the sweet spot. If you start casting too far, you're going to miss eats. It's just the nature of the beast. Okay. Okay. And, and um, it does require when, extra false cast to get it out there the extra distance, too. I mean, it, when you're in the in the groove with the 10 weight, it literally, it's finish your figure eight, single false cast back. Sometimes for short cast, you're just shooting it right out there. If you're casting the mm -hmm. full 40 to 60 and you have a bushy fly, you know, something wind resistant, it might be one more forward back, but it ends up being, you know, one and a half false cast and send it. I mean, it's a very efficient movement all day. Okay. Are there any... Um, 
you know, when you when you're actually seeing a follow to the boat, other than the figure eight, are there any last second things you can do to entice a bite? Yeah, that's actually that's that's another really. This is a cool format. I like all the the neat questions that come out of it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this is a, a tactic that was shared with me by John. We mentioned John Cooper earlier in this. Um, he fishes a lot of the ultra clear lakes in northern Maine, and you know if you get too close to the boat to try to figure eight, those fish will just spook off, and that's the end of it. So what he'll do a lot of the time, and this is his words. He'll give that real sharp strip about 10, 15 feet out from the boat, you know, a little bit further than usual, knowing that he's not going to be able to figure eight. And he said a lot of times that fish that, you know, is either following that he didn't see or did see will trigger on that kind of aggressive kind of extra action, you know, as a last-ditch effort. There's some other stuff, too, that you can do. Being dynamic is trying to do things that would trigger any it's not, you know, you don't want to be in a rhythm. You don't want to, if a follow is lethargic looking, um, learning to read like a fish's twitches and fins, like you you can tell if a fish is hot and it wants to eat or not. I mean, there's some fish that are just in absolute curious you know, kamikaze, <laughs> kamikaze mode. Yeah. I mean, they'll come around to eat and follow for 10 minutes. I mean, like we, we had a fish last year um, out in Minnesota that we, between four of us fishing for three days, we had to move the thing six or seven times. One Got one eat and it came off. But, I mean, that fish was hot in the eight for 10 minutes. I don't think you've ever tried to figure eight deep and wide for four to five minutes. It's an, It gets – you're going to be sore if you haven't done that. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, yeah. But it's well um, worth it. Well, let's finish up with this because we're already gone over a bit. But Silas Gray in, in Missouri wrote in and said, how the heck do you land these things? So tell us about, you know, what you do. I'm assuming most of the time you're fishing from the boat. How do you handle the fish so that they can survive? And what are your techniques? Yeah, I, absolutely. I'm going to mention one of our conservation partners here. Keep fish wet. Keep them wet. It's the first, like, deal landing. Having in the a net that is the proper size, right? You don't want to put them in your your crappie net or your bass net. Like folding a fish up like that's not right. You're going to hurt them. Having a proper musky net is the first step. From there, making sure you have the right tools to be prepared to land them. So like some folks like to have gloves to get a better grip on fish. I'm not much for gloves. A lot of folks will use like a bump board to measure them. Make sure you're dipping your bump board just to protect the coating on the fish. You don't want them, you don't want to increase chances of mortality from infection or anything like that. It's all precautionary, but having the right tools and everything in the boat is important. That That's long pliers, that's mouth spreaders, that is, if you're someone who wants to take pictures, that's not taking the fish out and messing around and keeping the fish out of the water. Like if you've taken extra time, like maybe the picture wasn't what you wanted. And, I mean, if you need to hold your breath to have an idea what that fish is going through, don't be afraid to do it. But put that fish back in the water. Let it rest. Like if, if you didn't get the picture you wanted, like you can put the fish back in the net. Make sure, you know, the fish isn't flipping over. But when it comes to actually landing them, you'll notice that their gill plate, if you slide your fingers, don't go into the gills, but you can actually slide your fingers up against their gill plate. And underneath the chin, 
there is a soft tissue, and, and we have a couple of pictures of this we can share. Remind me afterward, and we'll get those for you, where you set your thumb, and you can get a really secure grip of the fish there. And then as you pull the fish out of the net, make sure that you're securing its body. You don't want to hold the thing straight vertical because its internal organs have to deal with all that pressure inside. You know, you support the bottom of the fish. If you are someone that wants to take a picture, get your quick picture and then release the fish. But I'm all about, we were fishing in some really cold conditions this year, but in the summer, you know, get those in the water pictures if you can. I mean, as little handling as we can get away with. I'm not saying don't get your picture because a lot of folks, you know, you work hard for it and like do what you got to do, but just take care of the fish and just make yeah. good decisions. Yeah. Like sometimes yeah. if a fish thrashes, like hug the fish, protect the fish like it's a baby. Don't drop it in the bottom of your boat, right? Um, right. And it happens yeah. sometimes, but just being aware of it is most of the battle. Oh, yeah, there were some good tips there. Well, good. Well, Adam, we got to wrap it up here. We're running over and uh, need to still take care of a few things here. So stick with me. We're going to be giving away one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, one-year membership to Trout Unlimited, and then we're also going to be giving away that uh, $50 gift certificate for Muskytown that you so generously have provided. So um, let's do all that. Folks, just stick with me a few more minutes and we'll finish up for the evening. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization providing integrated medical, security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without a Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost more than $100,000. That's why over 1 million members trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start at just $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. Just click on Global Rescue icon in the footer of askaboutflyfishing.com. You'll find it in all the footers there. So uh, take, take a look, and, uh, and if you're doing a big trip, something to consider. Just a reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, take a minute and leave us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that said, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away our prizes. The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but uh, make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on getting some of these great prizes we have. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So... Let's uh, take a look. We'll get our database going here. And the first thing we're going to give away is a membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. And let's see here. The winner for that is Carl. Looks like Carl Arsand. Carl Arsand. Okay. Carl's in Maine, and uh, so thanks for playing, Carl, and congratulations on winning that membership, and so we'll reach out to you. We've got your email here. We'll reach out to you after the show. Second thing we're going to give away is a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. To learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org. If you're not a member, join. It's a great organization to be part of as well. And let's see, press our button here and find another winner. Looks like Julian. Julian, I don't have a last name for you in North Carolina. 
I do have an email address. starts with DRT. I'll reach out to you, and uh, we'll get connected and get you that membership for uh, Child Unlimited. And now to give away the $50 gift certificate, courtesy of muskytown.com, muskytown.com. And uh, if you need help spending that, I'm sure Adam will uh, be happy to guide you to whatever whatever needs you have, <laughs> you know, for musky fishing. Uh, he's already offered several times to, uh, to educate uh, our audience, and we really appreciate that. So let's see here. Now I have to clear my queue here. So to answer this question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. There's that form there where you could ask questions, at, you know, during the show. So just go there and put in your answer, your name, and your location. And the first person that gets the correct answer in will win the, win the $50 gift certificate to Muskie Town. Okay, so the question is two-part. Adam talked about bite tippet. What does he normally use? What uh, He uses nautical wire uh, uh, bite tippet. What pound does he use for that? And what's the lengths that he used? He gave a range that he usually uses. So what pound is that? that bite tippet and what lengths. So Adam will uh, keep refreshing here and looking for somebody that's going to give us a correct answer and takes a minute because we got a slight pause before they actually hear what we say and then they have to type it out so we have to kill a little time here. Okay, I'm going to let you decide here, Adam, whether this is correct or not. First one in is 20 to 40 pound, 12 to 18 inches. I think that for the sake of a podcast and where we are at 1030, I feel like we got to give that up. We were right in the <laughs> wheelhouse. Don't you feel like, I mean, like, we're yeah, all I was looking for, and everything else is money there. Um, yeah, I was think I was looking for 40 and 12 to 18, so he stuck the 20 to 40. Yeah, yeah, they, it was yeah. the 26 and the 20 piece. I feel like that's. Judges a lot. That that sounds good. Okay, okay. So, uh, so our first 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 person, <laughs> uh, Allard Allard in Calgary, Alberta. So, uh, uh, I don't have a first name, Allard. What you need to do is um, send me. You can use the same text box you just answered in. Send me your full name and your and your mailing address, and uh, I, and so that I can get that to Adam. Yeah, just an email, them. just an email and his full name, and we we can handle the rest from there. I think okay, okay. So I need your full name there. I don't know if Alad is your first name or last name. So send that over to me, and then we'll get that over to Adam, and he'll send out that gift certificate to you, and you can go shopping. So great. Well, thanks, for everybody, for playing. We really appreciate that, paying attention, taking some notes. Adam, really appreciate you. Thanks so much for being on the show and uh, and taking your time out and making a late night of it. Appreciate you being with us tonight, buddy. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate you having me. Have a great night. Yeah. Hopefully you all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line of our menu. In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 365 shows, which you can search by keyword or keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, Madison River, and so on. So just go ahead, explore, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at all the things you'll discover there. Our next broadcast will be on November 16th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll interview Al Quattrochi, and our topic for the show will be California Corbina on the fly. Al has been fly fishing for Corbina on the southern shores of California for many years. 
He's obsessed with the fish and the challenge to catch them. Some say it's one of the hardest fish to catch on the fly, even harder than a permit. Join us and learn about this incredible fish and how to hook up with them on the fly. Be sure to add this to our, this upcoming show to your calendar. Just go and look under Al's picture on our homepage. There's an Add to Calendar button, and uh, just use that, and that'll put it right on your calendar, and you'll be all set. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Ugly Bug Fly Shop, Global Rescue, and Gills Fly Fishing International for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com. Make sure you signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well,